Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Very enjoyable. And good afternoon once again, brethren. Uh, The topic is marriage. And uh, there's a couple out west that recently celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. And so they used to do a lot of dancing back in the day, so the husband decided he would take his wife to a dance hall, a disco, and they would just enjoy the old times. When they get there, they're having their meal, and they look across the dance floor. And on the dance floor, there's this guy giving it everything. He's on the dance floor. He's, he's doing the moonwalk. He's doing the funky chicken. He's just he's break dancing. He's backflipping. He's giving it all he's got. The wife nudges the husband and says, "You see that guy over there? Twenty-five years ago, he proposed to me, and I turned him down." And the husband says, "Yeah," and it looks like he's still celebrating. <laughs> So we know a lot of marriages fail. I think it's 50%. So one of every two couples fails. We just have to look around us. Uh, most marriages fail end in divorce. Uh, those that don't get divorced, they're not necessarily happy. Uh, a lot of affairs a lot of unhappiness, a lot of disgruntled. I would say a fraction of people who are married are actually happy. And what I want to talk about today is the Christian marriage. I think as Christians, we have a phenomenal opportunity to have happy, fulfilled marriages. Uh, the knowledge that's available to us today that was not available to our ancestors, and just the, the, the Word of God enables us to have Marriages that are second to none. And as I've been studying other religions, I appreciate the Christian marriage so much more. So I want to talk about Christian marriage today. I want to talk to our young people first about choosing a spouse. And then I want to talk to those of us who are married about making the most of our marriages. Let's begin And and as I say, I'll talk to our young people initially, and then I'll end with some practical steps of of things that we can do. Proverbs 18 and verse 22, for our youth, it says this, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtains favor of the Lord. So, So this is something that is a blessing. If you go through life and... Actually find someone who loves you and is willing to partner with you through life. That is a blessing from God. But as we saw earlier in the study, let God choose. Let God choose your spouse. Don't, don't, force, the, don't force the issue. Because you don't want to end up with someone that God did not choose for you. And that 25 years from now... You see somebody else doing the funky chicken and breakdancing, celebrating that they didn't marry that person. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6. I want to show you something there. 2 Corinthians 6. 
2 Corinthians 6. And verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, to our young people, it says this. Well, it's really to anybody who's not married. But if we are married, it's too late for us if we, if we violate this, this instruction. So for our young people, don't violate this. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So, so there are believers, there are households that are believing households. And there are households that are not. And if you're a youth in a believing household, you are sanctified. And you are part of the believing community. Don't go outside of the believing community and choose someone as a spouse who is not a believer. That is to be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? This is a foregone conclusion. This is obvious. There is no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. And what communion has light with darkness? There is light in the household of believers. And there is darkness in the households of people who are not believers. This might sound unkind. It's just facts. These are just, this is just fact. Verse 15. And what concord has Christ with the devil? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So we have the believing households, which are the temple of God. And then we have households that are enmeshed with idolatry. And are we going to mix the temple of God with idolatry? This is real. This is serious. For you are the temple of the living God. So the living God lives in our households, lives in our bodies. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So it's very, very, the instruction is very clear. Stay within the covenant community. Don't go outside of the covenant community. The blessing, whoso findeth a wife or a husband, whoso findeth a spouse, finds a good thing and obtains blessing from the Lord. But it's, it's a clear conclusion that that blessing from the Lord means you're not going outside into an idolatrous household and joining yourself to idolatry and looking for a blessing from God. Deuteronomy 7, we were here last week, Deuteronomy 7. where we can understand the heart of this instruction. Now, now we're dealing with the church saying, don't be unequally yoked. Let's look at the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1, in which, by the way, when the scripture says, don't be unequally yoked, the corollary is, be equally yoked. There's an unequal yoking, and therefore there's an equal yoking. And we'll talk about this equal yoking later, which is the Christian marriage. A woman is not a second-class citizen. 
A woman is not somebody that we control and oppress. A woman is a partner. Male and female, he created them. Be equally yoked. It's an equality. And we'll talk about that in a bit. So clearly, if there's unequal yoking, there's equal yoking. Now, Deuteronomy 7, why is this concern around unequal yoking? Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. So these seven nations will be cast out. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. So this is not unlike the flood in Noah's day, where the sinfulness of mankind is at its peak, it's at its height, and God has said enough. And he decides to wipe them out with a flood. All of them, man, woman, child, everybody. And start again with Noah. Then he promised he would never do this again. So even though they're building the Tower of Babel, trying to make sure they're never flooded out again, God already promised he'll never flood again. Now he's going to establish this righteous nation of Israel. And he says, you go into the land, these seven nations, which are mighty nations, much mightier than you, and I will cause them to fall before your feet and utterly slay man, woman, child. These are evil people. Their their idolatry is extreme. Their sinfulness is extreme clean up the land, and then I'm going to put you in that land. Now, utterly destroy them, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. And and by the way, this wrath of God is not reserved for these people. It's yet ahead of us. God does not tolerate sin, and we think sin is a joke. And, and, And our world, worldwide, we are just enveloped in sin. God is going to punish it. It's coming, not by a flood, but he will punish it. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show them mercy. Neither shall you make marriages with them. These seven nations, where their their sinfulness is extreme, do not make marriages with them. Your daughter you shall not give to his son, nor his daughter shall you take unto your son. Have nothing to do with them. Why? Is God a racist? It's like, you know, God loves white people, and these are black people, and we definitely don't want white and black people to mix. Is that, what God, is that God's agenda? He's very clear. He says why. Verse 4. For they will turn away your son from following me. They are so entrenched in their idolatry. They will not let it go. And rather than you converting them over to your religion, what's going to happen is they're going to drag your son, your daughter, into their Baal worship. They are so steeped in their idolatry. They are so wedded to their idolatry that if you mix with them, you're going to lose. You will stop following me. You'll follow their idols. For they will turn your son from following me, that they may serve other gods so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. So their, their idolatry leads them to perversity. And any, any study of history will show you how perverse these people were. And it's doctrine. The way they behave 
is based on their doctrine. So you marry them, you, you adopt their doctrine, you adopt their perversity. Look at Second Kings, uh, First Kings, First Kings eleven. First Kings eleven. First Kings eleven. While you're turning there, when I was in university, a first year university, a beautiful black woman was in one of my classes. Her name was Carol. And she was a model. And she was gorgeous. And so she was in one of my classes. I had five classes. A week later, she was in three of my classes. So she obviously made some changes so that she could be in my classes. And she was lovely. But she wasn't in the church. And I was. And I wanted to compromise. Like, beautiful woman, young woman. Maybe I could get her to see the truth. I kind of had a few Plain Truth magazines. I wanted to show her. She was kind of saying, yes, this is interesting. And it could have been so easy for me to just say, eventually she'll get it. But I didn't. Two years later, I met my wife. Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. Let, Let God find your wife for you. Let God find your husband for you. I could have forced the issue and and rationalized. And then where would I be today? More than likely, she would have pulled me into her Roman Catholicism. So be careful. Look at 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. King Solomon loved many strange women. A lot of strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, it doesn't call the daughter of Pharaoh a strange woman. She's an Egyptian. Egypt is not one of these seven nations mentioned. Joseph married an Egyptian. Ephraim and Manasseh, who define Israel, are half Egyptian. So God is not taking issue with Egypt. The issue is really with the Canaanites and their worship of Baal. And they would end up corrupting even the Egyptians. But here, he he loves many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Notice these women, the women in Deuteronomy 7 that God identifies do not marry these nations. Women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and the Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them. Don't do it. Utterly destroy these nations. They are so perverse in what they do that if you mix with them, they will draw you into their perversity. Don't mix with them. King Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, one of the most powerful men who ever lived, feels invincible. It's okay. It's me. I can do this. Oh, really? Let's read on. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely, absolutely, with certainty, they will turn away your heart after their gods. You mix with people who are into idolatry, they will pull you into their idolatry. Not not maybe, surely. Even King Solomon wisest, richest, most powerful man thinks he can violate this. Solomon 
clave unto these in love. They say love is blind, but marriage is a real eye-opener. And we need to be careful who we get enmeshed with. Solomon wasn't careful. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. You see, young people, marriage is lifelong. So I could try to convince you today that there's no God. And you could say that's silly. But if you give me 50 years to work on you, every single day for 50 years, eventually there's an erosion, there's a shift. Marriage is for life. These wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old. It didn't happen right away. This is the wisest, the strongest, the most powerful man. He's, he knows God. It didn't happen right away. But marriage is for life. And they just keep working and working and working. And when he was old, now he's about to die. The thing about it is, as you age, you get closer to the grave. If you're going to make your mistakes and you make them early, there's some time to recover. You make a a mistake as an old person, there's not much time. Solomon was old. When he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, let me just kind of interpret this for you a little bit, because I did say that doctrine drives behavior. So when they take this king of Israel that everybody's looking up to as the leader and they get false doctrine in his head, then that leads to perverse behavior. So Solomon became a perversity that the rest of the nation is looking and saying, well, if the king does it, we can do it. And so he leads the whole nation into the perversity of the Canaanites. Verse 5, so his heart was not perfect with the Lord, as was the heart of David, his father. So David really earnestly tried to serve God and follow the doctrine of of the God of Israel. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians. You don't know what that means? Let me just tell you, it's not good. It's filthy. King Solomon got into this filth. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil. The doctrine that got into Solomon's head led to perversity. He did some perverse things. Horrible perverse things. That he would never have done when he started out. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And went not fully after the Lord as did his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. And for Molech, so he's building this thing, which means that the Israelites now are taking their children, newborn babies, and they're throwing them in the fire, because that's how you worship Molech. Solomon led them to do this. Wise King Solomon. He's building these establishments so that they can worship these gods. 
And verse 8, and likewise did he for all his strange wives. So now he's an old man, an old fool. And whatever these perverse women are asking for, he's giving it to them. Kind of wears you down after a while. Which burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. This is the, 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 the man that God loved. They had a special relationship. And these women took him away from this relationship. And now instead of that love that God had for Solomon, God is watching the filth that Solomon is engaged in. Not only is he engaged in it, he's pulling the children of Israel into it. And now God is angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. So he had a relationship. And it's not impossible, if it can happen to Solomon, our young people, I ask the question, are you invincible? Can you mix with idolatry? And it won't happen to you when marriage is for life. Marriage is not a one-week proposal. It's a lifetime. And you're not just marrying an individual, you're marrying their family. And the family wants to go a certain direction. You're going to compromise. You're going to end up going that direction. So even though God appeared to him twice in person and commanded him concerning this thing, God told him, don't do this thing. He gave him direct commandment that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep that which the Lord God commanded. So it's a strange thing. It's just the way we're wired. But when you meet somebody and the chemistry is right, you lose your head. It's just just how it happens. In fact, most of people in the world, when you ask them, you know, how did you meet? And, and what was it about this person that you really liked? More often than not, you'll hear, oh, when I, saw, when I looked into her eyes, I just felt all gushy inside. Is that a reason to marry somebody? You'll hear men say, oh, I saw her hips, and they're just, I, oh, wow. Is that why you marry somebody? All of that gets old. What doesn't get old is loving God. What doesn't get old? Kindness. When you find somebody who's going to be kind to you, and that's just their character, and 50 years from now, you've had 50 years of kindness, that never gets old. Let God choose your spouse and choose within the community. Marriage is a process where we become one over time. Uh, ask your parents. You know, when Jennifer and I met, we were very, very different. But over time, we learn from each other, and we become one. And we can almost think the same way. I can anticipate what Jennifer's thinking. She can anticipate what I'm thinking. It's a process of becoming one over time. That's what this calling is all about. Look at John 17. John 17. John 17. And verse 11 says, Christ says to them, and now I am no more in the world. So Christ is praying to the Father. He's no more in the world. But these, 
the disciples are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one, as we are. As we are. So, the same way that Christ and the Father are one, that's his prayer that all of us can be one. That process of becoming one, we learn in family. When a couple comes together, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You have to stop being selfish. Selfishness doesn't work in a marriage. You, start to, you have to learn to think of others. When you're, born, when you're a newborn baby, you've got one person on your mind, yourself. Somehow, between being a newborn baby and becoming a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother, somewhere in that process, you need to learn to think of others. And as you learn to think of others, you can now be united with others. So the first part of learning how to become one actually starts in a family. starts with a husband and wife, thinking of each other, becoming one. Once you learn to shave off some of that selfishness, then you can actually be in a community and learn how to be one with that community. But a newborn baby cannot be one with the community because the newborn baby doesn't care about anybody else except itself. So we, we, in marriage, we learn to be one. And we heard the scripture that God created the male and female so that we, they can become one. You marry somebody outside of the covenant community, you are becoming one with that person. In fact, the scripture says, you go to a prostitute, you're becoming one with that prostitute. So we have to realize, who do we want to become one with? Someone outside of the community? Or somebody in the community so that we can continue this process? and become one with the community. Bottom line, you want to marry in the covenant community. This is for life. We, we want to marry someone who's going to take us closer to our destiny, not someone who's going to pull us away from our destiny and maybe cause us to lose out completely. We want to marry in the covenant community. Now, for those of us who are married in the covenant community, do we realize how blessed we are? The thing is, we're not perfect, and we're not married to someone who's perfect. So our marriages are not perfect, but our marriages are blessed. And, and we can miss the blessing. We, we can actually miss what we're a part of. So I want to talk to us about what we're a part of. The first thing is, when we get married, we make a vow. We're, we're given a vow, and we say, I do. We, we're, it's a pledge that we make. That's important. Look at Matthew 12. Well, I'll just read it for you. Matthew 12, verse 36. It says, I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. The idle word is argus, and it means that it's an unemployed word. It's something that you say, but it didn't perform. So, so we make a vow. If we do not perform the vow, that's an idle word. And God says here that we will give an account if we do not fulfill our words. So we're just speaking idly. So when we say I do, we are making a vow. And God is going to hold us accountable to that vow. Ephesians 4, verse 25, 
says, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. So our word must be true. When I say to my wife, I do, and I make that vow to her, that cannot be a lie. I have, that, that has to be the truth. So we, we have to live behind our words. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Christians are people of truth. Now, why am I harping on this? Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And verse 10. This is, this is a time yet ahead of us. This, this is prophecy. This is, this, every day is taking us closer to this time. And in Matthew 24 and verse 10 it says, And then shall many be offended. There's a time coming up when many will be offended and shall betray one another. There's a time ahead of betrayal and shall hate one another. So somehow the weather is going to change. It's not going to be sunny and nice anymore. And because of the bitterness of the weather, brethren turn against each other. We need to be people of our word. And that needs to begin in our marriages. We need to look our spouse in the eye and know, my spouse will never betray me. And I know that because my spouse has never lied to me. Never lied to me. We are people of truth. We speak the truth. And so no matter what happens, I can count on my spouse. Because the weather's going to change and people are going to betray one. I, I don't know who to trust. But we can trust those that we are one with. We learn to be one with our spouse. We learn to be one with the community. And no matter what happens, I know I can trust my spouse. I know, I can, I know my children. I've taught them from an early age. Never lie to me. Because when you're in trouble... I'm just going to ask you once. Did you do this thing? Or did you do, say this thing? And whatever they say to me, I will back them up 100%. Unless they have taught me that I can't depend on their word. And I'm glad to say, I, 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 I'm un, if my children have ever lied to me, I'm unaware of it. Everything they have ever told me is the truth. So anything, they, if they're in trouble... I don't care who it is accusing them of anything. I just have to ask them, did you do this thing? And if they say to me, no, I'll go to the wall for them. I'll die for them. Because they've never lied to me. This is the kind of bonding that we need. Our word means something. We never lie. What comes out of our mouth, we perform. It is true. And this starts in marriage. This starts in marriage. Okay. I mentioned to the youth, do not be unequally yoked. By implication, then, we are equally yoked. Christian marriage is equal. There is no superior and inferior in marriage. Yes, husbands have a leadership role. That doesn't make husbands superior. So we're a congregation. Murray, Jan, and I are in a leadership role. Are we superior in any way? Of course not. 
we, we just have this role. Somebody has to be the leader. And God has put us in this role. But there's an equality. We're members of one another. No one is superior. And in the Christian marriage, no one is superior. We are equal. We are equally yoked. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Beginning in verse 21. Notice it says this. Submitting yourselves to one another. It's not that everything Murray wants, Lisa has to do. Because she has to submit to Murray all the time, every time. No, that's, that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is we submit to one another. We respect each other. What, what you want matters to me. And so let's figure this out and see how we can accommodate each other. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Because of our relationship with God, we, we, and, and we understand that we are his body, we're afraid to mistreat one another. So we're, we're willing to understand each other and submit to one another. Wives, so submit to one another. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. This is something that you must do. It's not something that the husband must extract from you. It's something you voluntarily do. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. How? The way you would to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. He's not superior to the wife. He's just in the role of head. It's a body. My my head is not superior to my waist. My head is not superior to my knee. It's just a part of the body. But somebody, some part of the body has to be the head. We can't all be head. There's different body parts. But the body is one. And the husband and the wife are one. But somebody has to be the head. Even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So Christ is the head, but he's also the savior. Husband is the head, but he's also the savior. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So that's, that's the situation. In the Christian marriage, the wife submits to the husband the way the church submits to Christ. Sounds like a recipe of abuse for me. Sounds like you're going to subject yourself to a, a carnal human being in everything. You're setting yourself, for, self, setting yourself up for a disaster. But then there's this instruction to the husband. What does the instruction to the husband say? Verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives. So this is the insurance now. Wives, you're going to submit yourself to the husband the way you do to Christ, the way the church, the way the church does to Christ. But it's not a carnal man. Because now the instruction to the husband is to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. This is, this is groundbreaking. Go back 2,000 years and look at the way people lived their lives and look at this instruction. This is light years ahead of anything. Even today, 2,000 years later, we still don't understand the magnitude, the profundity of this instruction. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands the way Christ submits to the church. Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. Even as Christ also loved the church and sacrificed himself for it. 
So we see the instruction now, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of God. The way the wife submits herself is the way the church submits itself to, to Christ. The way the husband submits himself is the way Christ sacrificed himself. So Christ came to earth, and Satan said to him, I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Christ said, yeah, but what about everybody else? I'm not here for me. I'm here for the church. No thanks. Well, that means I'll crucify you. Do your worst. I'm here for the church. So Christ subjected his will. He suppressed his own will in order to save the church. So you husbands, submit yourself to your wife in the way that Christ submitted himself to the church. He didn't do his own will. He sacrificed his will to save the church. So the husband sacrifices his will in order to save the wife. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men, this is the way, this, this deep and profound concern for the fate and the salvation of the wife. That's what Christ had. And he completely allowed himself to be destroyed so that he could save the wife, so that he could glorify the wife. So the wife must submit herself to the husband, the way the church does to Christ, but the husband must, must submit himself to the wife in the way Christ allowed himself to be sacrificed in order to glorify the wife. This is, I, I can't articulate this, but this is, this is profound. This is profoundly beautiful. Profoundly beautiful. You look at some other religions. I won't name any. I won't. I'm under strict instruction. It's ugly. The way women are treated, it's disgusting. Look at this. This is just profoundly beautiful. Verse 29, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. So the Lord is nourishing us, he's cherishing us. That's the way a husband treats his wife. Nourishes her and cherishes her. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So there's a new identity created now. That the children grow up, they become adults, they leave the household, they establish their own household, and they become one with their spouse. And now they have their own identity. Nevertheless, sorry, verse 32, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. What's going on between a husband and wife in a Christian marriage? And there's nothing like this in any other religion. Nothing. Every other religion, we can actually look at, examine what they teach on marriage, and we can see the absolute failure of that religion just in what they teach on marriage. And then we can examine the scriptures and see the profound beauty of the Christian marriage and how all mankind can be blessed by following these instructions. 
this is a great mystery. There's something going on in our marriages that we don't, we, we don't understand it. We're, we're a part of something that we don't understand. But follow the instruction, and we'll be blessed. And one day we'll come to understand. But this thing between a husband and wife is sacred. It's profound. No one understands it. It's a mystery. We can begin to understand it as we examine Christ and the church. But it's a, it's a profound mystery. Nevertheless, it's a, pro, it's a profound mystery. I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. You, you, you don't fully understand it. Don't worry about that. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. So this is really interesting. We begin at verse 21. It's like open bracket. Then there's all this instruction. And then in verse 33, close the bracket. So we begin with submit yourselves to one another. We get some detail. And then we close with submit yourselves to one another. But there's a specific way that the wife should submit herself to the husband and a specific way that the husband should submit himself to the wife. Now, the husband and wife are equal. There's no doubt about this. Anyone who thinks that the husband is superior to the wife has been deceived by the devil. Because it's very, very obvious. Now, where we see this really clear, and again, let's go back 2,000 years, is in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, and I don't think this will shock any of you, but there's sex in marriage. There is sex in marriage. The reason it might shock you is because we live in a society that there is sex everywhere else except in marriage. People are freaking out over sex in every possible way, even with children. But in marriage, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you see couples sitting together, if you want to know which couples have been married the longest, look for the couple that doesn't talk to each other. That, that for sure they're married the longest. The couple that are looking in each other's eyes and touching each other, they're not married. The one, that, the one that's kind of reading his iPad and, the, other, and, and the, the, the woman is just looking at her meal and they're not saying a word to each other, that's the married couple. It's unfortunate. Satan has done a real number on us. It should be the opposite. There should be no such thing as any type of sexuality anywhere except in marriage. That's where it should be. Now, sex is a powerful thing. You can destroy people with sex. And that's what Satan does. That's why he takes children and and gets them engaged in sexual... This, This thing called... Uh, pedophilia. It's out of control, brethren. It's out of control. There's all these rings of pedophiles all over the world. It's out of control. This is the work of the devil. And he's destroying these, these... When you destroy a mind at that age, apart from the Holy Spirit, I, I don't see any recovery. And yet, sexuality has the opposite effect. It can be very, very destructive. Very destructive. But it's designed to be very 
healing, very beneficial. And how people treat each other sexually shows the true nature of those people and shows the true nature of whatever religion they're practicing. Look what Christianity says. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. Let the husband, and this word let is not like kind of allow it to happen. It's more of an instruction. It's like you say, let the games begin. It's an instruction. Start now. Okay? We're instructing the husband. You render unto the wife her due benevolence. The wife is due intimacy. You as a husband, you are instru- as a Christian man, you make sure you're fulfilling your obligation to give that wife her intimacy. And likewise, also, the wife to the husband. This is, a, this is 2,000 years ago, this is unheard of. That a man and a woman would be equal sexual partners? That's what Christianity teaches. One is not superior to the other. One is not a slave to the other. But they owe each other intimacy. And you make sure you do not fall down on this. If you're a husband... Do not fall down on giving the wife her due intimacy. And if you're a wife, do not fall down on giving the husband his due intimacy. The wife does not have power over her own body. Her body is for the husband to give him intimacy and comfort. But it's not one way. He says here in verse 4, Likewise, Complete equality. In the very same way, the husband does not have power over his body. His body is to honor and bless the wife. Do not defraud one another of this due. You can defraud your spouse. Don't do it. Why? Why? Because Satan hates sexuality. Satan hates sexuality. Satan wants to destroy our young people with sexuality. And then he wants to destroy us. And instead of this thing being a beautiful thing in marriage, that everybody who's married, you you never hear of divorce because there's just so much bliss and joy in marriage, who would ever leave this thing? No. No. Sexuality is everywhere except in marriage. And the scripture says here, do not defraud one another, except it be with consent. You both agree for a time that you might give yourself to fasting and prayer. So, okay, you you agree together, you know what, I'm just going to take this little period, there's some stuff going on, I really need to fast and prayer and and concentrate on this. Uh, You know, give me a day, give me two days, great, I'll, I'll actually join you. It's an agreement, mutually agree, uh, agreement, and then come together again. There should be lots of sex in a Christian marriage. It can't be that there's sex everywhere else except in marriage. There should be lots of intimacy in a Christian marriage. Come together again. Why? Because you're Christians. You're Christians. Satan is out to destroy you. We're not ignorant of his devices. He doesn't have many devices. But the tools that he has, 
he uses them really, really, really well. Really well. Really well. And one of them is temptation. You, you cannot, we saw it earlier, you cannot talk about idolatry without sexuality being mixed into it. Satan hates sexuality. He hates it. It pictures something that he despises, the reproduction of God in man. He despises that. So he's doing all he can to pervert it. And he's attacking the Christian marriage. And he's saying here, your, marriage, your intimacy in marriage is part of the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. When you as a wife or you as a husband bring that intimacy to your spouse, you are protecting your spouse from the enemy. When you as a Christian, man or woman, defraud your spouse, you are playing into the hands of the devil. You might as well take your spouse, dial 911 for Satan, and say, Satan, come and devour my spouse, because I don't care about this person. Satan destroys. He doesn't have many tools, but a big tool he has is sexuality. And he's, he's using it for all, he, all it's worth to destroy us. When a beautiful woman walks by, that should be completely boring to a Christian. Why? Because the Christian has his spouse. The Christian has her spouse if a beautiful man walks by. If Satan tries to tempt the way he did the children of Israel, and 30,000 of them were destroyed in one day because they fell for it, we should not fall for it. Television. I want to talk about television. Television is a powerful tool. He doesn't have many, but the ones he uses, he uses really well. Every television show, I think I can say this, it's, 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 it's a hyperbole. Every television show, and let me say, except one or two. So in case you have one or two, and you want to come to me and say, well, what about this? Okay, one or two. Every television show, except one or two, are designed to pervert you sexually. And the way Satan does it is he tells a story. And we all love stories. So we start watching this story, and we buy into the characters, and he looks like such a nice man, and he's working so hard, and his wife doesn't understand him. And then he meets the love of his life, and it was too bad he's married to this horrible woman because now he's met the love of his life, and he just wants to be kind to her, and, oh, they really need to be together. And we're buying into this story. And what's really happening is our moral compass is being perverted. And we keep watching these shows and take, buying these storylines, and subconsciously we're buying the moral code that goes with these storylines. We, we need to be very strict. Sexual intimacy belongs inside the Christian marriage and nowhere else. Period. And when we see it anywhere else, we should spot it as Satan's work. Period. Ephesians 5 again. Ephesians 5, this time beginning in verse 1. 
you Christians, Ephesians 5, verse 1, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us. That language again about the marriage, Christ giving himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So this is Christ's modus operandi. He sacrifices himself for the church. That's how we should be as Christian men. Notice this in verse 3. All of a sudden, we're dealing with fornication. We're dealing with walking as true Christians. And the first order of business is avoid fornication. Don't get involved with perversity. Why? Because false worship always includes perverse sexuality. Sexuality outside of marriage, always. Because that's Satan's tool. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Not even once. So you husbands and wives, do not defraud one another. Don't allow Satan in. Protect your spouse from the devil. And this stuff here, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Not once. Don't be like King Solomon and think you can dabble in this. Not once named among you as become saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 5. For this you know. No whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Satan would want you to believe that it's okay to be engaged in pornography. It's okay to have a little activity on the side. It's okay to engage in fornication. It's not. It's not okay. Because all of this is related to idolatry. All of it. And the scripture says, For this we know, verse 5, No whoremonger, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater. It's idolatry. It's all related to idolatry. It's all Baal worship. Anybody who's engaged in any of this doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. As Christians... We protect our spouses by giving them their due benevolence. They don't have to go anywhere for intimacy. There's an abundance of it in the Christian marriage. Because anybody who's involved in any kind of sexuality outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage or beside marriage, there's no way you're entering the kingdom. Sexuality is sacred. It's a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's sacred. Let no man, verse 6, deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Solomon thought he could navigate this. You can't. You can't. You cannot navigate this. You're either in compliance or you're out of compliance and that's it. Revelation 21. We were here earlier. Revelation 21 and verse 1, 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. I saw it myself. What did it look like? It was coming down from God out of heaven, and it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's John's explanation. God prepared this city the way a bride is prepared for her husband. Our society, a woman will prepare herself, adorn herself for everybody else except her husband. When husband and wife are at home, she's in baggy pants, curlers, don't brush my teeth, don't brush wash my hair, whatever. It's just, it's just my husband. Scripture says the bride adorns herself for her husband. We do the opposite. Now these idolaters, any form of sexual perversion is idolatry. You have half-naked women walking up and down, getting the attention of Christian men. Because the wife doesn't care. We need to protect each other from the devil, from Baal worship. Intimacy should be in the marriage, not outside of the marriage. Song of Solomon, husbands. Song of Solomon. A lot of women fall into temptation. Men fall into temptation. It's very easy. Just dress half naked and you got a man's attention. That's just biology. For a woman, that doesn't work. Well, some of the, for some now, they're so perverted that it actually does. But for most women, that doesn't work. What does work? Whispering sweet nothings. Woman's at work. Husband doesn't pay any attention to her. Someone at work says, you're beautiful. Oh, is that a new hairstyle? Are those a new pair of glasses? Husband didn't notice. Coworker did. That works. Song of Solomon 4, verse 8. Solomon, speaking to his spouse when he was on, when he was, this is the good part of Solomon. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. He's married. Look, look how he speaks to his spouse. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished, you've, you've taken over. I, I, I'm just infatuated with your beauty. Husbands, do we talk to our wives like this? Or do we allow Satan in? Somebody at work, at play, somewhere else, pays attention to our wife. And the way women are wired, they respond to attention. Here he's married. This is his spouse. This is, not, this is not just some woman. This is his spouse. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one of your eyes, with one chain of your neck. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. So my sister in the faith, my spouse. How much better is your love than wine? You know, maybe today we'd have to say, how much better is your love than my 60-inch flat-screen TV, (laughs) whatever the modern equivalent. 
would be. And the smell of your ointments. Notice that she has ointments. She doesn't just put perfume on when she's going out. Ointments are for in the house with her spouse. The smell of your ointments, then all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse. Is this kind of embarrassing for the young people? It's good. It's intimacy in the marriage. It's all good. Your lips, oh my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the smell of your garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Notice this, husbands. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. There's a lot of potential here. It's going to take some effort to release it. But it's worth it. She's a fountain shut up, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. That can be released. But it's going to take effort. Okay. So that's the equality in marriage. There's no superiority. We submit to one another. And and you can see very clearly from the instructions, there's no superiority. We're equal. We look after each other. How do we do this? And this, again, now coming back to our young people, I'm speaking to the married couples, but to our young people. How can you have a successful marriage? Marriage will fail without the mind of Christ. It's as simple as that. Marriage is designed for the mind of Christ. It's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, which means the mind of Christ is involved. If you try to get married without the mind of Christ, it will fail. Look at 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. And this, uh, brethren, for those of us who are married, do we fully have the mind of Christ? I think we would say no. Therefore, there's room for improvement in our marriage. Our marriages will improve to the extent that we adopt the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians. And there's a problem in Corinth where some of the brethren are eating meat sacrificed to idols. And other brethren are offended by that. And it's causing them to stumble. The apostle is addressing that with the mind of Christ. He says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, You take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. In other words, govern yourself. How? By considering the welfare of others. And that's the mind that we need to bring into marriage. We govern ourselves by considering the welfare of our spouse. I may have a right to do something, but I'm not concerned about my rights. I'm concerned about the welfare of my spouse. So I will sacrifice my rights in order to make sure that my spouse is looked after. That's the mind of Christ. Continuing in chapter, uh, verse 11. And through your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So uh, we saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians 7. It's the, same, it's the same letter. He's trying to teach them the mind of Christ. With a couple, you make sure that you're giving the intimacy that's due to your wife. Most women, that means attention. Give her the attention, the intimate attention that she craves. For the woman, you make sure you're giving the husband that 
intimate benevolence that's due to him. Why? Because you're concerned about their salvation. We're in a spiritual battle. Satan is looking for any angle he can take to destroy. Now you take that thinking and you bring it into the community. And yeah, you have knowledge. You're superior to other brethren in knowledge. But are you going to take your knowledge to destroy a brother or sister? That's not the mind of Christ. And through your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Now look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Same mind. From chapter 7 to chapter 8 to chapter 9, it's the same mind of Christ. In chapter 7, we're dealing with husband and wife. In chapter 9, we're dealing with brother and brother. Uh, chapter 8, brother and brother. And in chapter 9, we're dealing with brother and apostle. So members and apostle. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Aren't I an apostle? Isn't this my role here? Is there any doubt about my apostleship? Aren't I free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And we spoke about that this morning or earlier this afternoon. That that's part of the veracity of being an apostle. That you actually seen Jesus Christ. You're an eyewitness. Are you not my work in the Lord? Aren't you the fruit of my apostleship? So I'm establishing very clearly, I'm an apostle. Verse 12. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? So this is a whole argument that he has with the Corinthians, that they don't want to pay him any money. So they're tithing, they have their offerings, they don't want to give any of it to the Apostle Paul. He's saying, as an apostle, I have this power over you. It is my right to take money from you and live according to the gospel. I can exercise my right and do this. But you know what? I have the mind of Christ. If I do that, it will destroy you. Because I have accusers who are claiming that they are true apostles. And I'm a false apostle, and I'm just in it for the money. So if I actually, I, I need to eat. And if I actually take this money off you so that I can eat, that's going to give credence to the opposition. So because of the mind of Christ, I care about you more than I care about myself. If I have to fast another day, I'd rather do that than take your money, even though I have a right to your money. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. Instead, we suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of a Christian. This is the mind that goes into a marriage. That I have certain rights. There's power that I can exercise in my marriage. But that's not the Christian way. That's not the mind of Christ. Even though I know I'm being, let's say I'm being defrauded, I know that I have a right that I can exercise, because I'm concerned about the salvation of my spouse, I put her first. She does likewise. She brings the mind of Christ into the marriage. And even though there's, she has a right that she can insist on, she puts my salvation, my faith, my, my happiness ahead of her own. And she sacrifices. And this is how Christians conduct themselves in a Christian marriage. They bring the mind of Christ. Verse 14. Even so the Lord has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live off the gospel. This is an ordination from God. I have every right to do this. Verse 15. 
But I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. It's better for me to die that any man should make my glory in void. In other words, I am so committed to making the Corinthian church successful that I absolutely will not insist on my right. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the brethren. We see there the very mind that he, that he spoke of to the Ephesians, that Christ loved the church so much that he sacrificed himself for it. Here we see Paul doing that exact same thing. And this is the mind that we must bring into our marriages. So I spoke about Matthew 4, where Satan offered Christ everything. Christ turned him down. Why? So that he could sacrifice himself for the church. Philippians says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. And that's the Christian way. We esteem others better than themselves. Look at 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. getting that vibe like, is he going to wrap up soon? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. First Peter 3, and then I, want, I just want to talk about this, and then I'll give you a practical to-do list. First Peter 3 speaks about women submitting themselves to their husbands and, and, and conducting themselves in such a way that they win their husbands over. We've seen that that's the mind of Christ. Women will sacrifice themselves for the sake of the husband's salvation. Then in verse 7, says, Likewise, in the very same way that women submit to the husband, husbands should submit to the wives. How do they do it? Likewise, you husband, verse 7, dwell with them according to knowledge. So we should dwell together in a knowledgeable way. Don't be ignorant. Understand how human behavior works. And then have some wisdom with how we dwell with one another. Giving honor to the wife. Not, not subjugating her. Giving her honor as unto the weaker vessel. As being heirs together. This is the beautiful equality in the Christian marriage. We are heirs together. Together. Not one before the other. Equally. Heirs together of the grace of life. That your prayers be not hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Which mind? The mind of Christ. Be of the mind of Christ. So I want to talk for a moment about this dwell with them according to knowledge, which in kind of modern language, we would say have some emotional intelligence. Have emotional intelligence. Be able to read emotion. You're going to live with your wife? Have some emotional intelligence. And let me just talk a little bit about that. If we just look at the slide here. The first thing to understand about emotional intelligence is that emotions are tied to goals. People are emotional because there's something they want. So if we look at this next slide, it shows that, and, and the, the modern science, the neuroscience backs this up now. They can actually examine the brain function with healthy people while they're thinking, while they're acting, and see how it responds. And in the past, we used to think that people are logical, and then there's this thing called emotion that they have to control. What we're seeing now is that's not true. 
all of us are emotional. Emotion is a part of every thought, every action. In fact, emotion powers our thinking. We think because we're emotional. Emotion is the energy that enables us to think. So it shows us here now that emotion is tied to goals. Because of that, we can classify emotions as either positive or negative in the context of goals. So something that helps me achieve my goals is going to trigger positive emotions. Something that gets in the way of me achieving my goals is going to trigger negative emotions. All of us, kind of baked into our humanity, we want to be respected. That's a kind of baked-in goal that all of us have. So the scripture says here, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. You don't disrespect your wife. Your wife wants to be respected. You're not going to publicly humiliate her and then think good things are going to happen. You know, good things are not going to happen because you violated a goal that she has to be respected. So understand people's goals. Understand that their emotions are tied to goals. Then we need to understand a little bit about how the mind works. There are these three levels of mind function. The core level, because these scientists uh, believe in evolution, they call this first brain the reptilian brain. The second brain they call the mammalian brain. And the third brain they call the human brain because they believe that we evolved this way. And, and biologically, this is how the brain develops. The, the first brain, the primary brain, I prefer to call it the primary brain, develops first. That brain is tied to our nervous system, and it has one function. Think of it as a computer. There's an operating system, and then you install software on the operating system. The first brain is the operating system. It has one function, stay alive. So that brain, that first brain, is concerned with our survival. And it does everything to keep us alive. And it functions subconsciously. So even when our conscious mind goes to sleep, it continues to function. And it's always on. And it has one concern, me. So that first brain doesn't care about you. It cares about me. And your first brain doesn't care about me. It cares about you. So when a baby is born, that brain is functioning. And it doesn't care about anybody else except itself. And it has one function, stay alive. So when it finds food, the goal, it's happy. If it doesn't find food, the goal, it's frustrated. So that emotional system is baked in already. The next level of brain function is the limbic system. And for short, they call it the go system. And then the third is the no system. So the limbic system is our emotional system. They call it the mammalian system. And it's it, what gets us to move. Logic doesn't get us to move. Emotions get us to move. The reason we make decisions, the reason we get up every day is emotional. We are driven by our emotions. So that's the go system. And then the intellect is the, go, is the no system. It's how we know things. And the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, what things a man can know but by the spirit that's in man. So that is empowered by the spirit that's in man that we can know things that animals can't know. Now, it's important to understand the me system and the go system are baked, hardwired together. So that anything that threatens our survival triggers an emotional response. And anything that supports our survival triggers an emotional response. 
And these two systems together operate subconsciously, and they are very powerful. All of the advertisers, all of the Hollywood gurus understand this, and they manipulate this system in us. Because they understand that a lot of our decisions are made subconsciously. We don't even know why. We go into the store and we buy things. We don't know why. They know why. Because they're programming. They're speaking directly to that part of our mind. That part of the mind has more power than the no system. The no system just knows things. It does analysis, but it's weak. And when there's conflict between what we know and what we want, what we want overpowers what we know. What they don't understand is that God gives us that intellect so that we can know him. The gospel must be preached and it must be processed intellectually, not emotionally. It can't just be like, I feel God is coming into my life and I want to follow God. You have to study and show yourself approved. You have to use the no system to know God. Once you do that, that's the gateway to the Holy Spirit. So that no system is what engages the mind of Christ. And now, when there's a conflict between what we know and what we want, we can overcome the baser nature through the mind of Christ. So this ability to sacrifice ourselves for others is supernatural. And it can only be done with the mind of Christ. That's why you want to marry inside the covenant community. Because if you marry outside of the covenant community, you're marrying somebody who's driven by the me system and the go system. They will always act in their own self-interest. And the only way marriage can work is when we act in the interest of others. And that can only work with the mind of Christ. Let's conclude with a few action items. Number one, for our young people and those of us who are married, have a vision of your ideal marriage. Don't just take your marriage for granted. Don't just get up every morning, have breakfast, and just think like, I'm just married to this person. Have a vision. What does the ideal marriage for us look like? For a young person, have a vision. What do I want out of life? What what kind of spouse do I want? Because that vision will actually inform the go system. And you'll become emotional about somebody that supports that vision. And when someone comes along that just looks nice, If they actually don't support your vision, it's not going to trigger your emotional system. The scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So emotions are not wrong. God wants to bless you. Number two, for those of us who are married, in terms of emotional intelligence, in fact, if you could just uh, go to the next slide for me. So just we need to be able to look at, look at things from each other's perspective in the next slide. We need to understand how this uh, go system works, the me system and the go system. When there's a threat in our environment, the first system to trigger is the go system. It has to be that way. If you're driving and somebody's going to cut you off, you don't have enough time to say, hmm, He seems to be moving at 120 kilometers an hour. I'm moving at 110 kilometers. In about 1.3 milliseconds, we're going to collide. I think I should try to steer this way. We don't have time for that. 
So what happens is we take in the threat and the ghost system gives the instruction and we just do whatever it says. And then afterwards, the no system comes online and says, okay, I, what just happened here? Okay? So, so the no system is late to the party. But the no system can regulate the go system. It just it, it does so after the fact. Or if we've set our minds that we're going to behave a certain way. So this, this is the threat comes in, it triggers arousal. We need to know ahead of time, I'm not going to respond. So for those of us who are married, dwell with them with understanding. I would advise us this way. Never be angry at the same time. We're all emotional. Times I'm going to be upset, my wife has the wisdom not to be upset at the same time. Scripture says a soft answer turns away wrath. When my wife is upset, I'm not going to be upset at the same time. A soft answer turns away wrath. So we need to dwell together with understanding. There are things we can say in wrath. Scripture says a brother offended is harder to be won back than a city. So we need to make sure that we're not offending each other. Number three, well, I said that. Uh, don't be angry at the same time. Don't dishonor each other in public. We will trigger the threat response. If I'm up here saying terrible things about my wife, it's just a joke. I'm just joking about her. I'm triggering in her the threat response. And, and that's going to trigger the, the go system to, de- to defend itself. It says here, I mentioned a brother offended is harder to be won back. I didn't mention that um, there's this husband that he's always at the bar and his wife is fed up and she decides, I'm going to teach him a lesson. He comes back half drunk. I'm going to dress up like Satan. And when he walks to that door, I'm going to terrify him. So she says that's what she's going to do. He comes back from the bar, he's half drunk, he walks in, and she just appears out of nowhere, looking like Satan. And he looks at her and he says, Ah, you don't scare me, I've been married to your sister for years. (laughs) All right. I thought it was funny. (laughs) Um, Ecclesiastes 9 says, Live joyfully. Live joyfully with your wife, whom you love, all the days, all the days of your life. So we just have to set our mind that this is, we're going to make this joyful for each other and live joyfully all of the days of our life. Hebrews 13 says the marriage, marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. Sexuality anywhere else is a perversion. In marriage, mutual consent, it's undefiled. Look at Genesis 24 as we wrap up. This will be our last scripture. Genesis 24. Just before we go there, I'll just show you one more uh, slide here. And it just has to do with emotional regulation. And it's understanding again, dwelling with our spouse with knowledge. Emotions happen subconsciously. And there was a study that was done where they had four decks of cards, four decks of playing cards. And there was a game that they were playing where they had to turn over one card at a time from any deck. And depending on which card they turned over, they would either get a reward or they would lose their money. So they're trying to achieve a certain amount of money by turning cards over, but certain cards add to your wealth and certain cards subtract. Two of the decks were high risk, and two of the decks were high reward. 
And so they took these individuals and they had them uh, wired so they could detect their skin. And as they turned over a card, they could see whether the skin was responding. And they would see, okay, I just increased my wealth or I just lost some wealth. So they're playing this game, four decks, and about nine cards in, well, sorry, 20 cards in, the participants are finally able to articulate which two decks are spiked and which two, desks, two, which two decks are in their favor. That's 20 cards in. They can finally say, okay, I've figured it out. These two decks are the good decks. But nine cards in, their skin has already figured out which decks, which decks are which. So as they go to reach a deck that's high risk, they don't know yet that it's high risk, but their body knows. And they're reaching for the deck, and it's showing that their skin, they're beginning to perspire as they reach for that deck. When they reach for the deck that's high reward, there is no such response. So subconsciously, they are responding emotionally to risk, but consciously they haven't figured it out yet. So it's important to understand that these systems run subconsciously. And so there's a pre-conscious recognition of threat. Then there is an attention shift. So when we start to feel the emotion, then we pay attention. So now I'm beginning to figure out this deck has a lot of risk associated with it. How do I know that? I'm feeling it emotionally in my body. And that emotion drives my attention. So we cannot pay attention to everything. It's our emotions that tell us what to pay attention to. So there's an emotional attention shift. Then there's an appraisal of my emotions. How am I responding to this? Why do I feel this way? And then the cognition kicks in, where I now want to try to understand what is it I'm feeling. And then finally, we should have what they call metacognitive processing, where we think about how we think. We think about how we behave. Why, why, did I, why does that upset me all the time? You know, why maybe my children or my spouse are pushing my buttons? Why do I respond like that? And how can I respond differently? So we just need to be aware that emotions run under the surface subconsciously, and they know things. But we might not know consciously. But as we feel it, we should pay attention. And then as we pay attention and we find ourselves responding, we should think about how we respond. So the scripture says, live joyfully. That's what we should do. Look at Genesis 24. Genesis 24 and verse 67. And Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his mother's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. Isaac loved Rebekah. He loved her. Now, 26. Genesis 26. Verse 6. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked him of his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, she is my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah. Because she was beautiful to look on. So he realized, you know, this woman is beautiful. If they think that I'm her husband, then it's really easy. Just kill me, and then they can have the woman. So she's my sister. That way I can save my life. Verse 8. 
And it came to pass when he had been there a long time. So a long time has passed that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. So they're just living their life, living joyfully with one another. Abimelech happens to look out of a window, and he sees them playing with each other in a way that he comes to a conclusion. They believe their brother and sister, but they're having a moment where he says in verse 9, And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she's your wife. I saw you, the, the way you were sporting together, that's not what a brother and sister do. You were having a moment, I know that this is your wife. And how did you say, she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lined with your wife, and you should have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all of his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Put to death. So God did provide a way of protection. Uh, Isaac, unfortunately, didn't have the full faith at this time. But what I did, wanna, what I did want to uh, highlight is how much he loved Rebecca and how the intimacy was in their life. That just, Abimelech just happened to look out the window. It wasn't an act they were putting on for him. They were enjoying one another's company in an intimate way. That's what we should have in our marriages. That we don't, we don't live forever in this way. And the way the world we know today is not going to be the way it is forever. We should not take our marriage for granted. The Christian marriage is superior to every possible form of relationship anywhere in any other religion, any other country, anywhere. There's nothing like it. We have it. We have it. And our young people have the opportunity to have it as well. Let's not take it for granted. When we got married, we made a pledge. We said, I do. Now let's say. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.